Um, I love salsa. I do. I love salsa. My family is a salsa family. Every year, my nana and my mom and dad make these massive gardens with dozens upon dozens of tomato plants, and they produce tons of jars of the sweetest salsa that you'll ever taste. It is a family tradition. And finally, a few years ago, I got my nana to give me her secret salsa recipe, and I was so excited. But here's the deal, though. When you make Nana's salsa, you don't go buy vegetables from the grocery store. Oh, no. You have to grow your vegetables in your garden, in your backyard. So my wife and I, we knew what we had to do. We built a raised flower bed in our backyard. We tilled the soil. We got one of those starter kits and put the tomato seeds in it and began to watch it grow in the sunlight in our windowsill there. And each and every day I would check the, the seeds, giddy as a schoolgirl, hoping to see if the sprout was coming up out of the soil. And finally... The, uh, the seeds got big enough and the plants got big enough that we moved them into the raised bed in the backyard. And then we got the tomato cages up on them. We watched those tomato plants take off. It was amazing. Every single day I would make sure that the tomato plants would get enough of the sunshine that they would need and the rain, right, and the water. I couldn't get the sun and rain in here, so you have to put up with my flashlight and the spray bottle, okay? But we would, every single day, make sure day after day, week after week, month after month, make sure the right amount of sun, make sure they got watered until finally, man, the fun started happening. Those green tomatoes started turning red. We picked 25 of those tomatoes. I spent a whole Saturday making a massive mess in the kitchen until finally out came 12 jars of the most amazing salsa that you'll ever taste. There's nothing like Nana's salsa. We then entered into six to eight months of salsa bliss, eating the best salsa on the planet. And then came what I like to call the dark ages. It happens the same way every year. You open the closet door and there's one jar of salsa left. It's like, oh no, <laughs> what's going to happen? So I like put off my desires and my urges as long as possible, trying to sustain the blissful days of the salsa era until finally my cravings get too much and I pop open that lid and begin eating that last jar of salsa, savoring every single bite until it's all gone. It's truly a religious experience, believe me. And, um, and, and the problem is the ecstasy of that last jar of salsa only lasts so long. I mean, the cravings start to come back again. I, I, I probably have a problem, I know. That's another sermon for another day, right? But the cravings come back again, and I'm like, i got to get more salsa. And so next thing you know, I find myself at the grocery store buying a jar of pre-made, preserved, packaged pecani salsa that's pretty average. I mean, it's not made with the same care and attention and meticulousness of my Nana's homemade salsa. I mean, it's mass-produced, not handcrafted. It's a packaged item, not a preserved tradition. It's sold for the bottom line, not saved for a special time. It's quick and easy versus slow and steady. And when I think about that jar of salsa versus the homemade stuff, it reminds me of a lot of times how we approach the word breathed by God like a person hurrying through Walmart, checking off their grocery list, getting their jar of store-bought salsa, looking for the best deal in the shortest amount of time. Right? We get in, we get what we need as fast as possible, and we check out. I got what I need, I'm good. Yet you can't treat the word breathed by God like a jar of store-bought salsa. 
You can't open up the word of God and try to get in and get what you need and look for the best deal in the shortest amount of time and get out. When we treat the word breathed by God like an item to be used, it comes up empty. It does. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't do what the preachers or the teachers tell us that it will do, right? It's weird. It's distant and seems dogmatic. It's complicated and confusing. It's hard to receive and even harder to read. And it leaves us frustrated, wondering, how do you receive a word breathed by God? How do you receive a word breathed by God? In our frustration, we turn to whoever or whatever makes the most noise. We follow Twitters of celebrities or like pages of politicians. We buy self-help books from successful businessmen and we read the blogs of the perfect moms and dads. We take in articles and anecdotes, witty sayings or wild statements. We watch Jimmy on The Tonight Show or John on The Daily Show. We turn to CBS News or Fox News or BBC or Yahoo and we get caught up in row upon row of grocery store items and store-bought salsa, looking for the best deal in the perfect packaging in the shortest amount of time. In the midst of all the noise, we miss the word breathed by God. So how do you receive a word breathed by God in a world filled with noise? This was the tension that James was dealing with when he decided to put a pen to a piece of paper 2,000 years ago. We're going to be in the book of James, chapter 1. If you want to open up your Bibles to James 1. In the Bible in the pew in front of you, I believe we're on page 854. If you do not have a Bible today, that is our free gift to you. Please take that home. But James, the book of James, it was what we call the blue jean gospel. It's very simple. It's the book for the common man. And it can be summarized really as follows. Wisdom from above versus the desires or the wisdom or the noise from below. James begins to address this in James chapter 1 verse 14. He says this, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. That word's like a, a, a fishing lure, enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. That's what James is saying is simply this. He says that the wisdom and the desires from below lead to sin, which leads to death. You see, James knew that the Christians in the early church, they were going through some difficult times. There was a famine throughout the land. There was economic recession. People were living in poverty. And these Christians also had been persecuted by the Jews and kind of kicked out of their homes. And they were living as refugees and exiles dispersed throughout the land. And finally, these Christians also, they kept getting caught up in between the political strife and tension between the Jewish nation and the Roman Empire. There was a lot of noise going on. And James knew that these Christians needed encouragement and support on how to receive a word breathed by God and not follow all the noise. And so he says this in James 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. 
And so the contrast to the desires of wisdom from below is this. James is saying wisdom from above leads to the word of truth, the word breathed by God, to first fruits, producing a crop, to life, not death. And so you have this kind of as a summary, wisdom from above versus the desires of wisdom from below that leads to sin, which leads to death. And James is basically saying you can choose, guys, one or the other. Which one are you going to follow? And I love the imagery that James uses in that last verse we just read. The metaphor he paints, picture, is that of a plant growing, the plant cycle. Look at these here. It says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down like rain, from the Father of the heavenly lights. Go ahead and go to the next one. He chose to give us birth or to kind of sprout out through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits or a crop of all he created. You see the imagery there. You see the metaphor. In the same way that plants, they need water, right? And they need the sun in order to grow. We, in our spiritual growth, and our spiritual life, we need the word of God to come into our lives and produce fruit and the nourishment that we need. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Under the Unpredictable Plant, he paints this picture for us. He says, the word of God is like the sun and the rain that comes down into the soil of our spirituality. I love that picture. Every single day, plants need sun and rain. And we as Christians, if you want to follow Jesus and have the, the, the life that God's created you to live, he has given you the word proclaimed and the word written. And for the remainder of this passage, James gives these Christians three specific postures that we are to take in order to receive the word breathed by God. The first posture is this. We need to receive it in humility. James chapter 1, verses 19 and following. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Receive it with humility. He said, I know probably a lot of you, as you read that passage, you think, man, that's a lot easier said than done, right? Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I messed up on that this morning, okay? You know, like, how do you do that? Like, that's so hard to do. And James isn't saying, okay, guys, uh, just try harder and, and, and get better and become just more and more righteous through your efforts. He didn't give you a three-step plan. He said, he gave you a posture to take. He said, receive it with humility. And in my journey of trying to understand how to receive the word breathed by God, that last phrase that he says there is so impactful. And humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. As I've struggled with trying to figure out how to receive the word breathed by God, two dangers continue to rear their ugly heads. The first danger was that I approached the word as information to be used rather than a message to be received. In junior high, my first two years of high school, this is how I approached the word of God. I only opened this book up when I was in some argument with somebody or had an opinion that I wanted proof that I was right. 
So I'd come to this, I'd look for the perfect wording or the shortest phrase to kind of support a, a conviction or a belief that I already possessed. It was kind of looking to use it to beef up my own argument. Scholars call that way of approaching scripture eisegesis, okay? Now it comes from the Greek preposition eis, E-I-S, that literally means into. And so the idea is that you have your opinion and you're reading your opinion, your beliefs into the Bible. You're looking for something in here to prove whatever conviction or belief that you already have. And so you're looking to read meaning into Scripture. You're using, you're placing yourself above the Bible to use it instead of below the Bible to receive it. C.S. Lewis illustrates this difference like a bicycle ride. He said, when we place ourselves below the word to receive it, that's like going on a bike ride with a guide, okay? The guide is taking us on new paths and new journeys and seeing new sights we've never seen before. So if we place ourselves above the word to use it, he said, that's like taking a motor, putting it on our own bicycle, and going along the same paths and the same journeys and seeing the same sights that we've always seen, just with a little bit more juice, a little bit more power. And see, that's the difference between using is kind of powering up our own beliefs and our already held convictions, whereas receiving the word breathed by God, the focus is placing ourselves below the word and allowing the word to take us to new places for new opportunities and new growth we've never been before. But receiving a word breathed by God is not eisegesis, but the alternative, which is exegesis, okay? It comes from the Greek preposition ex, which means to exit, right? To go out of. It's pulling meaning out of the Bible, not putting it into. But it's placing ourselves below the word in order to receive a message. Just like plants need to receive sun and rain, we need to receive a message and guidance and direction from the word of God in order to make our thinking and our living more in line with Christ. Then came the second danger, okay? The second danger with the word of God being breathed is that it can become a textbook that is studied and mastered instead of a word that is received. Isn't, doesn't that happen when we want to really take the word of God seriously, we begin putting ourselves above the word in order to master it, to dissect it, to tear it apart verse by verse and word by word. We kind of want to wrestle it to the ground, right, and figure it all out and get rid of all mystery. Eugene Peterson, he says this in his book, Eat This Book, that exegesis does not mean mastering the text. It means submitting to it as it is given to us. Exegesis It doesn't take charge of the text and impose superior knowledge on it. It enters the world of the text and lets the text read us. Exegesis is an act of sustained humility. When I was in Bible college, I really struggled with this tension between using the Bible for my own opinions and mastering it as a textbook. Sure, there are some good biblical principles of interpretation that we need to follow. We need to remember context is king. Context is the most important thing. We need to remember that we need to ask a question, what did it mean 2,000 years ago? And then how does that apply to us? We need to make sure we read the Bible in community so we don't get off in some weird interpretations and isolation. There are some solid principles. But the number one principle we have to approach the word of God with is to receive it in a posture of humility. 
to receive it in humility. This principle began to come up to the surface over and over and over again. We can't take hold of the word. We have to allow the word to take hold of us. We have to allow the word to take hold of us. So how do you receive a word breathed by God in a world filled with noise? Well, first, you've got to receive it in humility. The second posture you need to take is we must receive it in submission. You see this in James 1, verse 22 and following. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. So one way we, we receive the word is we, we have to receive it in submission. There's a message that we receive and we have to do something about it. John Calvin says this, that all right knowledge of God is born of obedience. You got to do what it says. Spiritual maturity is not about how much Bible knowledge you have. It's how close is the ratio between your knowledge of Scripture and your obedience to that knowledge. So if you get more knowledge, you obey more. That's the key to spiritual maturity. I love the illustration that Francis Chan gives. Um, he says, okay, say, say I'm going out of town for a week. And I call my daughter before I leave and I say, honey, go clean your room. And then I leave town. And say I come back from my trip, my daughter runs and meets me at the door. And she's like, Daddy, Daddy, guess what? I took your command so seriously. He's like, awesome. Well, did you clean your room? She's like, well, no. But I memorized what you said. Go clean your room. Isn't that awesome? I quoted it every night before I went to bed. Go clean your room. It's like, but did you clean your room? Well, no. But I actually, I formed a small group. And we got together every single day and we studied what you said and we memorized it together and we quoted it to each other and gave each other golden stars and we said it right. We studied the Greek roots and the Hebrew transliterations of every word you used and the historical context and the political events occurring at the time you gave me the command and the parallel commands that you gave my brothers and sisters on the same day. Now that's a silly illustration. But sometimes we laugh because it's really close to home, right? I mean, God has commanded us, go make disciples of all the nations. Love your neighbor as yourself. Follow Jesus. Be changed by Jesus and be on mission with Jesus. And he doesn't care as much that if you can regurgitate all those things word for word or if you know the Greek roots of every word that's spoken in Scripture. His concern is, are you obeying what I've commanded you to do? Now, friends, I don't want you to feel as if this is a chore or as, as if we're calling you to be slaves to a master and this is some kind of bondage to get you in. No, this is what John Wesley calls a means of grace. It's a means, it's a way in which we receive the grace of God. He says that if you want to receive the gracious life that God has created you to live, if you want to receive the grace of God on a regular basis, then you must take a posture of submission when receiving the word breathed by God. Eugene Peterson, he says it this way. If we have not entered this text as participants, we aren't going to understand what's going on. 
This text cannot be understood by watching from the bleachers or even from the expensive box seats. We are in on it. One of the early Jewish rabbis, he said that the primary body part for receiving a word breathed by God is not our ears, but our feet. He said to learn of God is not to hear his word, but to follow the rabbi, to put it in action. We can't take hold of the word. We have to allow the word to take hold of us. So how do you receive a word breathed by God in a world filled with noise? Well, first, you've got to receive it in submission. Well, in humility. Second, you receive it in submission. And in the third posture that we must take when receiving a word breathed by God is we must receive it with consistency. Look at what he says in James 1, verse 25. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Just like a plant, every single day needs the right amount of sun and the right amount of water in order to grow. So we in our spiritual lives, we need a daily uh, nourishment of the word of God every single day on a regular basis in order to produce the fruit that God has in store for us. Um, this last week I bought uh, two identical plants here and um, they're nice, aren't they? I actually walked into the house with two bouquets of flowers and my wife was like, oh, and I was like, they're not for you, sorry. Uh, <laughs> So I, I owe her another bouquet of flowers. But anyway, so I have these two, uh, two flowers here, okay? And what I did was I took this one on the right, and I put it in the window. Got it the right kind of sun, right? I, get, I gave it some fresh water, made sure it had enough water. You see me spilling right here? Yeah. Um, I made a mess, too. I'm not doing really well right now. But, um, yeah, and, and, that, and that flower had the right amount of sun, the light, the water, all weekend long. And here is the, that bouquet flowers today. Still alive, looking great. I mean, look at that. Very nice and pretty, right? Everything's facing up towards where the sun was shining. Okay. Then I took the other one on the left and put it in a closet. I gave it no water and I closed the door. Okay. And I left it there except for one half hour where I took it out and put it in the sun and I drenched it with water for half an hour. Here's this pl that plant today. Okay? Now, friends, if the only time we receive a word breathed by God is a half hour on Sunday morning, this is the result. If the only time we ever receive the word breathed by God is a half hour every four to six weeks, which is the average attendance of an American in a Christian church, we're going to get a lot worse than this. Now, friends, in no way do I want you to hear me guilting you into church attendance or in reading scripture. I want to give you a picture. I want to give you an image of these two plants. And every time you crack open the word of God, you're saying, okay, I'm a plant coming underneath the sun and the rain that I desperately need. It's not a chore, it's a means of receiving the grace 
and the gift that God has in store for us. So my hope for you this year is that you choose to make Nana salsa. You don't get the prepackaged stuff filled with preservatives, but you put in the time and the energy and the consistency to receive the word breathed by God, to receive the sun and the rain to grow your spiritual fruit. So you must receive it with humility, in submission, and with consistency. This is how, okay? Two challenges. Whether you are a Christian or this is the first time you've walked into church before. Whether you're a guest here, you've never been here at Crossroads, or you've been here for 20 years. Here's my two challenges. Okay, first, my challenge is attend weekend worship every weekend for one year. Okay? Don't miss an opportunity to have the word of God proclaimed to you. To sit under the sun and the rain for a half an hour. No matter where you're at, gathering together with the saints, even if you're on vacation, don't miss that opportunity. And then here's the second one. Read the Bible in a year. It's my junior year of high school when I committed to doing this, and my life, my spiritual life was completely transformed. Reading the Bible in a year. We actually have, uh, a couple years back, I created a little pamphlet that was a help on how to read through the Bible in a year. It has kind of a read through the Bible plan, that you can follow every single day. It has rest days in case you get behind, you can get caught up. Um, and uh, I wrote about a half a page on every book of the Bible. Just here's some tips, here's ways to apply that book to understand it. And we have that on our website. If you want to go to resources uh, that help you grow or under this sermon title, you can download that document and use that. It's a PDF. It's just for all of you guys. It's, it's no extra charge. It's free, right? And we'll give it to you, okay? I want you to use that. If you don't have access to the, webs, the interwebs, um, then we do have some hard copies of that document at the Connection Center, okay? We have only a few hundred of those. So if you don't have access to that, you can go get one. But I hopefully... You can use that, and that can benefit you in trying to read through Scripture. Um, I am fallible, okay? I've never edited the document before, so there's a lot of mistakes. So please give me grace. But I think it's still accessible enough to help assist you in your reading through the Bible in a year. So how do you receive a word breathed by God in a world filled with noise? How we receive the word is important. I asked Chris um, to come up here, and he's going to sing a song to end our services. Um, and during, while he sings that song, feel free to sit in silence, and meditate on the words. Feel free if you want to sing along. But whatever you need to do, make this song and the lyrics to this song your prayer. Haddon Robinson was a preaching professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he felt like he needed to go get training, a PhD in preaching, in order to teach preaching. So he went to the University of Illinois, and he showed up to the communications department, and he said, I'm here. They're like, well, what do you want to study? He said, well, preaching. They're like, preaching? He said, yeah, I want to study preaching. So what do you want to preach? He said, well, preferably the Bible. The Bible? He said, yeah, the Bible. So that's an old book, isn't it? He said, yeah, well, yeah, it is. They said, hmm, well, you should go to the classical literature department. They'll teach you how to preach the Bible there. 
So they sent him over to the library, to this muggy corner of the library where the, all the great works of the Western world were held. And in, in that corner was the head of the classics department smoking a cigar named Dr. Otto Dieter. And Haddon Robinson approached him and said, well, I guess you're my academic advisor. And Dr. Dieter said, well, what do you want to study? He said, preaching. He said, preaching? Well, you should go to the communications department. And Haddon said, I've already been there. They sent me to you. And Dr. Dieter said, well, son, you want to study preaching, huh? He said, do you believe in the Holy Spirit? He said, yes, I do. And Dr. Dieter said, well, the Holy Spirit hasn't been in this department in 64 years. Go back to the communications department. He said, sir, I've already been there. He said, preaching, huh? Well, what do you want to preach? He said, well, preferably the Bible. He said, the Bible? He said, son, what do you believe about the Bible? And Haddon said, oh, here it is. Here's my time. I need to take a stand. He said, sir, I believe it's the word of God. He said, oh, you do, do you? He said, well, let me tell you something. He said, you see all these books they're the great books of the Western world. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. He said, I've read all of them. He said, you see that book over there? What is that book? And Haddon said, well, it's the Bible. He said, you may tell you the difference between those books and that book. The difference is the people, the difference between the people that read those books and the people that read that book is that the people that read that book, they have their lives changed. And in that moment, Haddon left the University of Illinois library knowing that he had been given the best reasons and arguments for the validity and the vitality and the authority of Scripture from a pagan's classics professor. You can't take a hold of the word. You have to allow the word to take hold 